Father, you are our king. You are the sovereign Lord of all things. Nothing happens apart from your eternal decree, and all of them are good. Lord, it is easy in our day and in our lives to question what you are doing, because often we don't see the good. Lord, we trust and rest in your eternal sovereign goodness. And now, Lord, as we look at your word, we ask that it would accomplish the work you sent it to do. That it would be like the mirror that we look in to examine our lives, to demonstrate to us the areas in which we need to grow, to encourage us in the areas in which we are doing well. Lord, I pray that we would be mindful hearers of your word, that as we walk away from it, we would change where you convict us. Lord, we thank you that you have not left us without instruction. And so we ask that your word will work in power this morning. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Take your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy 4. Millennials. Can you believe them? With their distressed skinny jeans, their avocado toasts, and their entitled perspective. Well, you've heard statements like that, right? The older generation has taken to calling them uh, snowflakes, right? Soft, weak, insignificant. Millennials and even Gen Z have responded in kind with the derogatory phrase, okay, boomer, right? As their way to dismiss and pass off these attacks as old people yelling at clouds. The reality is generational conflict and challenge has been a reality from the dawn of time. The older generations have always struggled and look at the younger generation with a thinly veiled contempt while at their youth, while the younger generation stand with bitterness and frankly often an uh, outsized opinion of themselves. This has always been the case. Timothy uh, faced these conflicts as well. Because these conflicts often work their way into the church. And as a result, the church seeks to make itself uh, compatible to one generation or another. Hanging doggedly to tradition in order to appeal to the older generation or just scrapping everything. Making it more exciting in order to appeal to the younger generation. But how is the church actually supposed to respond to these generational conflicts? So said Timothy faced this as he sought to bring the Ephesian church back to health. Last week, we observed the challenge that Paul gave to Timothy to stand faithfully for the word, to faithfully study the word, faithfully stand against foolish teaching and faithfully pursue godliness. And he concluded that challenge by reminding Timothy to command and teach these things. But this was not going to be easy because of the generational conflicts that were apparently taking place in the church. And so Paul gives Timothy the challenge we see today. We're going to cover one single, singular verse. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse number 12. Let's look at it together. Paul writes, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. As Timothy was commanded to lead this church back to health, 
to faithfully stand for the word and study the word and to faithfully battle wrong teaching, command and teach these things with authority. Some people apparently were jealous of Timothy. They resented that he'd come from the outside and was correcting their failures. Others simply looked down their noses at his apparent youth as pretentious, a lot like Goliath did with young David. This has been a problem since the dawn of time. Older people have always found it difficult to accept young people as responsible adults in their own right, let alone as leaders. Young people often are embittered and angry when the older generation continually belittles them by reminding them of their immaturity and their inexperience and treating them with contempt. So, so how is the church to respond to this problem? Well, in this text, we see two important reminders from Paul to Timothy, which serve as the backdrop to our response to generational problems. First, Timothy remi- Paul reminds Timothy to stand faithful in spite of, of youth, to stand faithful in spite of youth. He says, let no one despise you for your youth. The word youth is an interesting word, it refers to those of young, but it was used of individuals all the way up to the age of 40. I kind of like that. An ancient Roman author and linguist named Aelius Gellius stated that soldiers were youth up to age 46. Josephus noted that although Antonio was a, Antonia was a young woman in her late 30s, she refused to marry. Uh, he calls Agrippa youthful when he was almost 40. I think we should adopt this. Timothy started serving Paul in his second missionary journey about AD 49. We find that in Acts 16. At this point, Timothy was most likely between the ages of 22 and 27 because it's hard to uh, envision Paul permitting a younger person, a teenager, to travel with him on such a difficult and dangerous journey. So allowing for the fact that Timothy was probably between 22 and 27 at that time and allowing for that journey... The third missionary journey, the imprisonments, the four years of imprisonment, and then the time following Paul's release to travel and then Timothy being sent and spending some time in Ephesus. We believe that at least 13 to 15 years have passed. And so that makes Timothy in his mid to late 30s at the time that this text was written. So Paul is instructing Timothy in this mid to late 30s, not to let anyone despise his youth. The word despise is also an interesting word. It means to think down on, to underrate, to treat with contempt. This word can also uh, signify disgust and even hatred. Will anybody hate you for it? This was a problem all over the place. As Timothy had traveled to Corinth, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 16, let no one despise him, help him on his way in peace that he may return to me for I'm expecting him with the brothers. So how was Timothy not to allow others to despise his relative youth? Right, as he stood before these Ephesian church leaders, many of whom were, were older, elder men, how was he to keep them from treating him with thinly veiled contempt. Was he to demand this? 
Don't you know who I am? Don't you understand the training I've had? Don't you know what I know? No. The way to overcome this contempt was by demonstrating maturity in life and in conduct. It was not by acting with arrogance or bragging about his credentials or demanding the respect. Instead, Paul instructs Timothy to gain this respect by living as an example of the Christian life. He tells us the way to overcome generational conflict and difference is to stand as an example of the believers. Simply demanding respect or issuing orders would only deepen the divide. Instead, he was to live before the believers in a manner above reproach. He says, let no one despise your youth, but instead, here's how you overcome it. Set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. He's to be an example. The word example is the word type. It it denotes making a mark by striking or impressing on something. And it can also refer to forming a mold, making a mold out of which other patterns are cut. And, And we understand that in our culture here in the making of auto body parts. They make the mold and they cut them out over and over. We're to be the mold that others can follow. But this word means more than simply becoming a model or setting an example to watch. It also was to be a life molded by the word of God, conformed to the image of Christ. One man said, the more life is molded by the word, the more it becomes a type, a model, an example. Uh, it, was, it was a case of living out uh, a life of faith in the gospel as it had shaped it. The Puritan Thomas Brooks said, example is the most powerful rhetoric. We say it this way. Actions speak louder than words. The challenge is that too many simply demand respect. They attempt to set themselves up as the example. Follow me without actually being an example. But Paul informs Timothy that in order to gain the needed respect, he was to be an example. He needed to live consistently day after day so that others would increasingly realize the example of Christian character that was before them and would follow it. Too many attempt to take leadership by force using the dominance of their personality or ability to demand respect and leadership. But that's not to be the case in the church. In his challenge to pastors at the end of his first epistle, Peter reminds them in their leadership to act in humility. He says, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. The great pastor John Stott said people would not despise his youth if they could admire his example. So Paul tells them to present five areas in which they are to lead by example. How are they to be example? Well, there's five ways that we are to do this. As we look across this body and, and some of you are frustrated Because you don't believe that you're getting the respect that you deserve. 
Rather than wallowing in bitterness or demanding that others listen to you and respect you, seek to become an example in each of these areas. The first area is to be an example in speech. An example in speech. This is the word logos. It's spoken words. It refers to everyday speech. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about our speech. We could preach and look at a lot of messages about the way we talk. Because our speech reveals our hearts. Christ said in Luke 6.45, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. He said to the Pharisees, you brood of vipers, Matthew 12, 34. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of the good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you'll be justified and by your words, you'll be condemned. How often have we said something and then said, I'm sorry, that's not what I meant. That's not who I am. But the reality is that was a moment of complete honesty. It's exactly who we are. Well, youth pastor used to always do it this way. And I've given this illustration to you many times. and I hope it sticks like it stuck with me. He used to take a trash can and he'd say, if I boys, if I dump this out, what's going to come out? And we'd all, as junior high boys, you trash! And he'd dump it out and out would come tennis balls. Say, why were you wrong? Why didn't trash come out? Because I put tennis balls in it. What I put in is what comes out. Another time he took an orange, he's holding it up, says, when I squeeze this orange, what's going to come out? We all yelled, orange guts! He squeezed it. And out came tuna. What? Why? Because he'd hollowed it out and filled it with tuna. He said, what's in is what's going to come out. Garbage in, garbage out. Good in, good out. In your speech, what's in your heart comes out through your speech. What you fill your heart with is how you're going to talk. Further, our speech is to be honest. We're to be forward and right. Ephesians 4.25 says, therefore, put away falsehood. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we're members one of another. Colossians 3, 8 through 10 tells us, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self. Too often we are not honest with one another. We put it off as, I didn't lie, I just didn't give it truth. Reality is truth is missing in our day and age. It's hard to know who's speaking right. We ought to be people that are known for truth. What we say can be trusted. Why? This is because God is a God of truth. He never lies. So in order to be like him, we have to be honest ourselves. Titus 1-2 says, In hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began Hebrews 6:18 so that by two untouchable things in which it is impossible for God to lie 
We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. See, God is truth. He cannot lie. And therefore, he hates falsehood. Proverbs chapter 6 tells us there are six things that the Lord hates. Seven which are an abomination to him. And the first two, a haughty eye, a lying tongue. Proverbs 12.22 tells us lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. But those who act faithfully are his delight. Further, our speech is to be uplifting and wholesome, not degrading and flippant. Ephesians 4, 29 to 31, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you with all malice. Colossians 3, 8 through 10. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing you've put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. A lot of times we speak in ways that are not uplifting, degrading, slanderous. We pass it off sometimes simply saying, well, I was just joking around. I was just having fun. We're just mean. How would our speech change if we simply said, is this corrupt or is this uplifting? What I'm saying, is it helpful or is it hurtful? Does it build up or does it tear down? We have to be a people marked by building up. That after conversations with us, people walk away full because we've been an encouragement and a blessing. James 3 relates our speech to a wildfire. One small spark from hell that causes irreparable damage. You know, too often we give no attention to the words we say. We seek to be the center of attention or, or ensure that we're participating in the conversation or we're simply trying to be funny or humorous. We do damage through foolish, unwise words. This is important because, as Christ told us in Matthew 12, we will give an account. He said, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. That is a scary proposition. One day, I'm going to stand before God for every careless word. I think through not just life or the year or the month, but even the last week and day of careless words spoken. We ought to be people of right speech. Perhaps you're one of these people that says, you know, I just say what I think. You never ever wonder, because I'm just going to say, I am an upfront person. We wear it like a badge. But we forget Proverbs 29, 11. A fool utters all his mind. But a wise man keeps it until afterward. When we wear that like a badge, the badge says, fool. We need to control our speech. We need to be careful in what we say. Well, let's be honest. We could say much about speech. The Bible's filled with 
passages and texts and lessons about our speech. So let's learn to bridle our tongues. Learn to be silent. Be an example of Christian speech. Use speech which builds up, not speech that tears down. Be an example in speech. Second, we are to be examples in conduct. This word conduct is a word that refers to behavior. It's a general word referring to one's entire way of life. Your day-to-day actions. You see, the radical uh, change expected of the Christian is everywhere. It impacts every part of life. The Christian life is to look different than the way he lived prior to salvation and different from the world. You lay aside, uh, Ephesians 4 tells us, you lay aside the old self and, and you put on the new self being renewed in the spirit of your mind. And the likeness which God has created in righteousness. Ephesians 5 tells us, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Paul says in Colossians 3, 8, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and seen talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing you've put off the old self with its practices. You've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Christians ought to be markedly different. We're to be examples in our conduct. John MacArthur says a biblical message paired with an ungodly lifestyle is nothing but blatant hypocrisy. See, the problem in the church today is that too many Christians are indistinct from the world. We talk like the world. We act and react like the world. We have the same priorities as the world. We think like the world. This past year has revealed this in full force. In the way that we act just like everyone around us. We're told throughout scripture that Christians are to act differently. James tells us who is a wise and understanding among you by his good conduct. Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Peter in first Peter 1 15 says, but as he who has called you is holy, so be holy in all your conduct. He says in First Peter 2, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. We ought to act in such a way that even when they say we're doing wrong, even when they look at our righteous deeds and say, what are you doing? They know we're different. He says in verse in chapter three, Peter says, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. That as they slander you, people look and say, uh, really, that's the one you're going to go after? Have you seen the way they live? Your actions speak much louder than words. You know, we say we love God. If we went around the room and said, do you love God? Every one of us would say, of course I do. Yes, I love God. We say we love God. But then we prioritize our job or our fun or our entertainment or our political preferences. 
We say that we're Christians. But it's not unusual when the church in Christ is not the center of our attention and efforts. We say we want to please God. We really don't study his word in order to obey it. We have to look forward every Sunday so that we can look righteous as we come back to church. Young people, all the way up to 40-year-olds. Older people, if you want people to respect you, if you want to be a leader in the church, be an example of a godly life. Set an example in conduct. Sell out for God. Quit making everything else more important than him. But this is not done with contempt of others or bullying or self-righteousness. Rather, we see thirdly that everything we do is to be marked by love. We're to be examples in love. Now, we know in the English language, this word has been hijacked. This word here is that agape love that we see throughout Scripture. It's the God-like, self-sacrificial love. One man said, the beauty of the word love has often been pointed out. As defined in Scripture, this love offers itself freely to someone who does not deserve it. This love does not seek to be possessed or possess the beloved. We're to be examples in self-sacrifice, others-preferring, God-honoring love. We ought to be marked by deep personal attachment to one another. Rather than looking with thinly-veiled contempt at others, we ought to love them. You might say, but pastor, you don't understand what they're like. You don't understand how much they irritate me. And all they have to do is show up, and I'm irritated. We're commanded to love them, to sacrifice for them, to care for them. In fact, we ought to be marked by this. We ought to be marked by a genuine concern for our neighbors, including even our enemies, even the people of different political views of you. You ought to be marked by love towards them. Always seeking to promote the welfare of all. In fact, when Christ was telling his disciples, here's how everyone will know that you're my disciple. Here's how everyone will know you're a Christian. By carrying around your Bible and smiling. No. By saying amen. No. By not drinking or chewing or run with those who do. No. What did he say? By this, John 13, 35, will all people know that you are my disciples? If you love one another. He talks in 2 Corinthians 6, 6, how we'll be known. Paul says you'll be known as believers by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, and genuine love. In 1 Timothy 5, uh, 1, we saw it already. In 1 Timothy 1, 5, Paul reminds Timothy, the aim of our charge, the goal of the church is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Paul challenges the Colossians in Colossians 3, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, 
humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The church in Corinth, he challenged them in 1 Corinthians 16, 14, let all that you do be done in love. The problem is that too many of us are marked by love of self rather than love of others. We love others only so far as it is convenient for us to love them. But the moment it's inconvenient, then we don't really love them anymore. The moment they treat us like a servant, the moment they don't pick up after themselves, the moment they run through the auditorium, the moment they don't act the way we do, the moment they don't make a decision we think they ought to make. Yeah, I love not so much anymore. We're to be marked by love. See, through the teaching example of Christ, we see that greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. In other words, are you willing to sacrifice your very life for the others? Or is it all about you? You want to be an example? You want people to respect you? Be an example in love. Fourth, we're to be an example in faith. In faith. As we saw last week, Christianity is itself and the sum of its message are, are called faith. So this word faith is the sum of everything that we believe. We are to be examples in faith. And faith is found, it's revealed in the teaching of Scripture. The sum of Christian belief and actions. We're to be an example in our study of, our knowledge of, and our obedience to the word of God. Our authority, our respect, our leadership does not come from ourselves, our positions, our abilities, our personalities. No, it only stands insofar as it is founded in the word of God. That's why we always ought to ask, what does the Bible say? When we are deciding what we should do, we ask, what does God's word say? You see, we're too pragmatic. We seek only what works or what burdens us or what makes us feel good. Rather, we need to turn to the word for answers. You want respect in the church? If you want people to listen to you in the church, speak from the word. Be an example in faith. Finally, we're to be an example in purity. This word covers not only chastity and matters of sex, but also innocence and integrity of the heart. It's, it's a pure actions and pure thoughts. We'll see it later in 1 Timothy 5, where Paul tells Timothy to treat older women as mothers and younger women as sisters in purity. We live in a sex crazed culture. The sexual revolution is here. Everything is about looks and sexual attraction. But the church is to be different. Paul tells Timothy in his final epistle, 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful passions. You know, we are to stand for the biblical sexual ethic in the light of the sexual revolution taking place around us. Now, make no mistake, it's coming. It's coming. 
This week, the House passed a bill which would make it illegal for me to preach against and stand against sexual perversion. Are you willing to stand? In spite of the cost. But we can't stand against the sexual revolution if we live lives that make, uh, that make it no different from the world. Or we can't stand if we're not pure ourselves. We can't ignore or wink at sexual activity outside of the confines of marriage between one man and one woman and stand for purity. We see it as a sin it is. We need to be examples in purity. When we stop demanding respect and we begin to live lives pleasing to God, it'll become evident that authority in the church is contingent on character, not on age. Just because you're older doesn't mean that you gain respect or are wise. It just means you're older. Just because you're younger doesn't mean that you've gained respect or are wise. It just means that you're younger. We live in a culture because of the digital revolution, which has really turned things on its head, where because younger people can handle technology, they get to determine things. They begin to get an oversized view of themselves. All it means is that you're good at technology and you're young. Right? Respect comes through the way we live as an example. John Stott said, the great, ex- the great temptation whenever our leadership is questioned, threatened, or resisted is to assert it all the more strongly and become autocratic, even tyrannical. But leadership and lordship are two quite different concepts. The Christian leads by example, not by force, and is to be a model who invites a following, not a boss who compels one. John MacArthur says, the greatest tool of leadership is the power of an exemplary life. A Puritan by the name of Fairbairn says, If thou wouldst properly retain thy place and overcome the disadvantage conducted with thy youth, take heed that thou be such an exemplary of Christian excellence and worth that all true believers will be disposed to esteem and love thee. Do you want to make a difference in the church and in the world? Do you want to see this church be successful in It's evangelistic, disciple-making, God-honoring purpose. Be an example of a Christ-like life. Stop demanding attention. Stop demanding respect. Stop demanding authority. Instead, humble yourself. Humbly serve God and let Him take care of the sphere of your influence. Wise man once said it this way. You take care of the depth of your heart and God will take care of the breadth of your influence. I'm going to leave you with five so what's today. Five things to think about to spur your thinking on. So you talk about it throughout the day. Number one, don't use your age as a reason or an excuse. Don't use your age as a reason or as an excuse. Be an example. Number two, learn to bridle your tongue and encourage others. Make the verse you think about this week. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good for the use of building up. Edify one another. Number three, 
make your priorities about things which promote God. The problem is too many of our priorities are not necessarily bad things. They're just not things that advance the cause of Christ. Don't prioritize those things. Make your priorities about things which promote God. Number four, love others and study the word. Love others and study the word. Finally, eagerly protect purity in your life. Eagerly protect it. It doesn't happen by accident. Guard it. Stand for truth. Let's pray. Father, it's easy in our culture today, in a self-made world, to demand that others follow and listen and respect us. Lord, help us to understand that only true success and the advancement of the kingdom of Christ comes only as we exemplify Him. Help us to be a church that is marked by self-sacrificial love for one another. A passion to serve one another in the community. To share the gospel of Christ. Lord, help us to be examples of the believers. That in all things, you might be made to look as good as you really are. Lord, I am so thankful for the many in our congregation who already heed and obey this text. Who are for me an example of what it means to be a Christian. Who are a pattern for me to follow. Lord, I pray that you will bless them for their service for you. Help them not to fall or falter or fail, but to continue to press forward until the day that you return or the day you call us home. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.